Hi everyone and welcome to Red Flag Radio. I'm Emma Norton and I'm Chloe Rafferty. And today we're doing a whole episode about the housing crisis. We are recording this podcast on stolen Gadigal land, land that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And as your intrepid podcast hosts, uh, we spent uh, some time the past few weeks visiting uh, some protests across Sydney about the housing crisis, um, protests led by students, activists and public housing tenants. Yeah, we sort of tried to be proper journalists over the last couple of weeks. We shoved a mic in a few people's faces and they gave us some very smart answers to our questions. So you will hear those uh, interviews peppered throughout the podcast today. Uh, But first up, uh, we're joined uh, by Martin Barker. Uh, Martin is a member of Socialist Alternative, um, an advocate for tenants um, in Sydney, uh, and an activist who's involved in the campaigns to defend public housing um, across Sydney. Um, So he's represented tenants uh, in their disputes uh, with landlords, and he's also a regular contributor to Red Flag, uh, where he's written about the housing crisis. So welcome, Martin. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Martin. So let's talk about the situation for renters. We know this is horrendous, but you must have a keen sense of how bad it has gotten given what you do day in, day out. Yeah, look, I mean, there has been uh, a rental crisis really in Australia for a long time. Uh, But I'd say over the last year, year and a half, it's really reached uh, a new level. There were reports in the papers today uh, that unit rents in Sydney have gone up 27.6% in one year alone. Which is pretty extraordinary, and across all the capital cities in Australia, it's about twenty six percent. So already, unaffordable rentals uh, have become even more unaffordable, and I think a lot of tenants really are going to the wall. Um, Anglicare produces uh, an annual rental affordability uh, snapshot, and really for years that's shown that there are very few properties in Australia that are affordable for people along low incomes. But their snapshot for twenty twenty three. Uh, is pretty shocking stuff. Um, if you're on the job seeker, there are four properties in the entirety of Australia that are affordable for you. If you're on uh, youth allowance, there are no properties that are affordable for you. Even if you're on the minimum wage, there's 0.4% of properties across the whole country um, that are affordable. And this is a snapshot that takes into account like share houses, rooms in share houses that are advertised uh, on Gumtree. So we're not even talking about proper homes. Um, but it's just clear, actually, um, that there's a very deep crisis uh, in um, renting, in the rental sector, uh, and it's just increasingly a challenge for people just to even have a, a roof over their head. Will, so are you a tenant in Sydney? What's it like renting here? Uh, sure, I am. I'm from the southwest of Sydney. It's pretty shit. Um, we didn't have a ceiling for a month and there was a gas leak that the landlord didn't tell us about for two days uh, at the beginning of this week. So it's great. Horror story. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> What's it like renting in Sydney? Good fun? Uh, pretty terrible, yeah, particularly at the moment. Uh, I had a rent increase at the beginning of this year, so that was one thing. Um, but, you know, the condition of a bunch of rentals is also pretty terrible. When there was a lot of rain last year, uh, 
just everyone I knew had water coming through their roof that they the landlord refused to fix. Um, same thing happened to me. And when the landlord came around, he yeah, left his extremely expensive his BMW idling in my driveway <laughs> while having a look at the ceiling and then still didn't fix it for another three weeks. So yeah. And you didn't key his car. Well, maybe I should have, yeah. <laughs> And I mean, one thing that's been in the media a lot is the hatred towards landlords, which I'm sure we all uh, have. And have you seen landlords kind of taking advantage of this in in the work that you do and, you know, upping rents? I know some people have had their rents increase by, you know, $200, $300 at a time. Are these some of the the things you've been dealing with in your work as an advocate for tenants? Yeah, and people hate landlords. People also hate real estate agents. They yeah. hate them a lot uh, and for good reason. Um, and yeah, uh, our service has just really been inundated uh, with calls uh, from renters uh, who are receiving massive rent increases. Just before I came along, I just went back through our list of advices that we've given to people uh, about rent increases. Our uh, highest one was 50%, um, but it was no outlier. Like, Many increases uh, in the 40% range, 30%, 20%. So really significant increases and often accompanied by a notice of termination. Uh, The message from the agent, from the landlord being, well, cop this, uh, you're going to pay this uh, or you're out. Well, I wanted to talk a bit about mortgage holders because actually the, you know, experience of mortgage holders, uh, debt uh, repayments going up with the rising interest rates is also then connected to uh, the rising costs um, of renting as well. But yeah, what what's the situation for homeowners um, who have you know experienced uh, mortgage stress um, because of the interest rates? What what do you think that's about? Yeah, look, I mean, I think the the situation for mortgage holders is uh, getting pretty dire. Um, Australia has one of the most unaffordable housing markets uh, in the world, and because of like the massive escalation of house prices. Like I was just looking at some statistics, uh, house prices in average house prices in Sydney over the last 10 years have doubled. And so now the average mortgage that someone needs to be able to get a house is about $585,000. So it's a massive amount of money. Um, And the recent interest rate increases have had a significant effect on mortgage repayment. So the average mortgage holder is now paying about $1,250 extra uh, per month. Um, and uh, there are now 1.4 million households in Australia uh, that are at risk uh, of mortgage stress, and we can only expect that number to go up. Um, on 1 July, a whole bunch of uh, mortgage holders came off fixed interest rates, so we can, accept, we can, we can expect uh, that the levels of, of mortgage stress are just going to get uh, higher and higher. We discovered from interviewing uh, both renters and mortgage holders at some of the protests around the housing crisis that um, Philip Lowe is a bit of a hate figure. Uh, Philip Lowe being um, the head of the Reserve Bank of Australia, one of the key figures, not only responsible for raising the interest rates, but also one of the key figures who's come out just like fully to back this kind of offensive against the working class. What do you think are some of the motivations from the RBA for raising interest rates? Well, I think it's about protecting the profits uh, of the big banks and the corporations. Uh, Inflation has been rising off the back, not of wages, but off the massive profits actually um, that the big companies have been making. And raising interest rates is all about protecting uh, that money. So like the big banks hold $2 trillion in mortgage debt 
And in the first uh, six months of uh, the last financial year, they made $17 billion worth of profit. So their experience of rising interest rates is, well, actually, we're just going to make more money out of this. Uh, but the experience uh, for mortgage holders is actually they are being forced to pay um, for, for a cost of living crisis that's been created uh, by the same banks, the same corporations who are actually profiting from it. I think as well they want to, they do see, um, you know, the rising inflation as a sort of destabilizing element in society. This is from the point of view of like the ruling class, the, you know, Australian government, the RBA. And so they do want to stabilize that and bring interest rates down. Uh, sorry, not interest rates, bring um, inflation down. But their only mechanism for doing that is basically an enormous amount of pain for the working class. Yeah. It's like that's what the interest rate uh, rises are about on one level is just, um, put, you know, making people lose their homes, pushing people um, uh, further down the poverty scale so that they can no longer spend so that eventually uh, prices come down. And that's like... You know, all across the world, we're seeing that governments that essentially want to push uh, ordinary people to the brink and push their own economies into recession so that they can, you know, achieve this sort of stabilization of inflation. Um, and I think the Reserve Bank in Australia, they're teetering a bit towards a full on recession. Um, but regardless of whether it actually officially goes into uh, a recession, the, the outcome is an enormous amount of pain for working class people. And like you said, continued profits for the rich. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think really the message from the RBA to working class households, uh, to students is you need to suffer so that we can save you, really, which is just crazy. And you would have seen like Philip Lowe's been dispensing advice to people, which I'm sure they've been glad to hear. His advice to people who've got jobs is work harder, work longer. Um, his advice to students who can't afford rentals was, wow, just get a few few more flatmates. Like this is a guy... Uh, he lives in a $4 million mansion, leafy suburb uh, of Sydney, actually bought his house uh, with a government-subsidised mortgage in the 1990s. <laughs> um, so he's sitting in his mansion, he's on a, over a million dollars a year and dispensing this sort of advice uh, to people who are suffering at the hands of the interest rate increases um, that the RBA is um, making. Our comrades are if uh, Philip Lowe, our uh, esteemed governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia, was here, what would you have to say to him? Fuck you. You go find extra hours right now as well. No, saying to work more and, like, getting into a share house, this dude's so out of touch. It's like, yeah, get into a share house. It's like we've been doing that for decades. <laughs> like, fuck you. Well, if uh, Philip Lowe was here with us today, what would you have to say to him, Declan? I'd say, Philip Lowe, I'm looking for a house, and I heard your $4 million uh, Randwick mansion has a couple of spare rooms, so... Um, I'm a housemate. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking it's to get fine. a room. I'm He's a housemate, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'm allowed to say, I don't know if we're allowed to say it on Red Flag Radio. Um, oh my God, just, you are scum. <laughs> you are a terrible, terrible person. Everything you say is horrendous and bullshit. And I really hope that there is a, I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't think words can quite get through what I'm trying to say to Philip Lowe, I think. 
and Philip Lee is a bit of, is a real warrior for the Australian capitalist class. Like he pretty openly says the stuff that politicians usually don't voice out loud that they want to drive up unemployment, that they, you know, part of the um, pain of uh, interest rate rises is, yeah, it's making people spend less, i.e. working class living standards um, going backwards and just pretty shamelessly getting out there and saying, oh, you, you know, plebs, you're lucky, you've never had it so good. Yeah. Um, it's the kind of message from Philip Lowe. I think one point worth making is like he can be a useful kicking bag a bit for the Labor Party though because like if the Labor Party, there's nothing that could stop like stopping them from actually turning around when the RBA does it. Like they didn't raise interest rates last time but um, they probably will again in the future they have in the past. There's nothing that would stop the Labor Party from actually just stopping that from happening, from legislating against it. Actually one of the things that they want to do in their review of the Reserve Bank of Australia is get rid of their own power (laughs) to stop interest rate rises because it's very useful for the government to have uh, the Reserve Bank as this independent, totally independent, don't blame us. It's not our responsibility. Yeah. Totally, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a a message really that Labor is trying to send about housing in general. This is something that's not within the government's control. This is about the market. There are market forces. These are uncontrollable. They just have their own logic. Whereas the reality, of course, actually, is there's a whole heap of things um, that the government could be doing. And so much of what's happening in the housing crisis is the result of government decision making. Uh, But they want to shift responsibility for that either onto technocrats uh, like Philip Lowe or just onto the system. It's just the way the market works. Well, maybe moving on to some of that stuff, like one of the major explanations in the media and that the government has given for the housing crisis has been it's a supply crisis of um, basically there aren't enough homes. Um, you know, some of them are also blaming immigration. Maybe we'll get to that in a bit. But one of the things they've uh, – one of the scapegoats they've used is local councils and basically ordinary people, the NIMBYs, the not-in-my-backyard uh, types, who apparently have been slowing over the last few decades the pace of development, who have said, no, you can't build that apartment, no, we don't want high-density apartments, etc. That's the problem. That's why there aren't enough houses now and the crisis is, um, has hit. What, do you, what would you say to that? Do you agree with that? Well, I think that really these are the arguments of the property developer lobby. Um, and if you look at the actual facts, um, supply of housing in Australia has actually outstripped population uh, for years and years. Uh, but prices for houses have continued to go up. Rents have continued uh, to go up. So really the issue here isn't supply, it's the fact that the homes that are being built are being built uh, on the basis of whether developers, investors can make profits from them uh, and they're unaffordable uh, for the majority uh, of people. And so I think when Labor talks about, oh, the problems with local councils, we can't get anything built, again, it's about shifting blame. It's about saying, well, it's not the government that's responsible, it's not the fact that this housing is being delivered for profit through a market that's responsible um, for the supply, the lack of supply, that actually it's ordinary people uh, who are holding up supply because they don't want uh, a development on their street or in their community. And I think it's worth saying as well that um, I think people are right to be concerned actually uh, about having these big high-rise buildings built uh, in their neighbourhoods because, again, these properties are being built 
purely on the basis of how much money the developers can make out of them. They don't come with any infrastructure. They're not well built. Um, the quality of the housing uh, is really low. So actually, yeah, it does make actually the quality of living uh, for people uh, in these neighbourhoods where these high-rise buildings uh, are being built much worse. And it's really this false divide that we're given, which is like you can take this like totally roughshod, like not built for purpose, uh, unregulated, whatever the property developers want to give us housing, or you can have nothing. That's just the kind of picture of neoliberal capitalism, the options that we're um, given. And obviously it's a big kind of partisan attack that the Labor Party make on the Greens in particular for wanting to campaign around public housing um, and that, you know, it's all about um, over-regulation and red tape that's kind of um, getting in the way. One uh, um, question I had, though, is there's been a lot of talk about empty houses. So, because <laughs> it's not just this pure supply crisis. That's a very convenient way of talking about it for, you know, the government and the media and, and the developers. But there are actually a shitload of empty houses sitting around that people could be living in, but no one is. Why is no one in those? Yeah, across uh, Greater Sydney, there's about 164,000 properties that are just uh, sitting empty. Some of these are the holiday homes of rich people, uh, but a whole bunch are also just investments. Um, but they're investments where the investors choose not to put anyone in them, knowing that they're still going to make uh, a lot of money out of it. And the reason they can make a lot of money is because house prices uh, have been rising they can buy, they can hold on to it for a few years uh, while the house prices uh, go up, and then they can still claim tax concessions, uh, capital gains tax concessions uh, at the time they sell it. So it's like totally viable uh, actually to make a lot of money out of property investing uh, without using the house for the thing it's actually supposed to be intended for, which yeah. is actually to have people live in it. And this is one way, right, because the government – really want to wash their hands of any responsibility for the crisis. But it's government laws like negative gearing and cap the capital gains tax and stuff that allows for this to happen, for there to be such a, um, a for-profit market in housing, even when it's not being used as body housing. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, uh, whether investors are entitled to negative gearing or capital gains tax uh, exemptions is just totally a matter uh, of government policy. Uh, government policies introduced uh, in the 1980s under a Labor government um, and then uh, really ramped up uh, under the Howard government uh, in the, the 1990s. And that has really fueled, I think, uh, the housing crisis uh, in Australia, both in terms of rising house prices but also the unaffordability of rentals because really the housing market uh, is just a game really of speculation now. Uh, for people who have uh, a lot of money. If you're wealthy enough uh, to buy an investment property, um, you are betting uh, that the house price uh, is going to go up. Um, but all the time that you're holding onto it, waiting for your big capital gain, uh, you can use negative gearing uh, to just claim all of the losses uh, off your property, uh, off your income tax. And so, I was looking uh, at an example on an investment website, which is trying to you know, convince you what a great strategy uh, this is if you're one of the tiny number of people in Australia can actually afford to do this stuff. And the sort of returns you can make uh, off buying houses, uh, investment properties are pretty extraordinary. Like on an investment uh, of $100,000, like you can make a 25, 26, 
percent return when you take into account all the negative gearing benefits and the capital gains tax uh, deductions. So, like, that's an eye-watering profit um, uh, often in often investment. And you barely have to do anything. Just you don't buy have to a do- fucking house and sell it. Anyone could do that. Yeah, you don't have to do anything I don't know why I'm sounding all. surprised. I, I know how capitalism works. It's just <laughs> disgusting. Well, and, and, and actually the, the one person who might just have to do a little bit, which is the real estate agent that you hire, the cost of paying for them, that's coming off your income tax. That's one of the things you can negatively oh get. So the government's basically giving free money to the investor and the real estate agent parasites. to do this. Paying the salary of other parasites. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. But this is it. And maybe just as an illustration then back to the um, – uh, the interest rate increases. Like people who have investment properties in Australia get rewarded for having investment properties. Like the government is giving them money, like massive amounts of money, like $100 billion over the next uh, four years. Whereas if you're stupid enough uh, to only own one house, the house that you live in, the government's not giving you any money. The interest rates go up. That's something you're going to have to pay. And if you can't pay it, you're going to lose your house. Well. Aside from the argument that it's all of the NIMBYs and the red tape that is the reason why there's a supply crisis, the other big uh, argument, particularly pushed by the Liberals, the racist right, um, is that it's migration, unprecedented uh, apparently levels of migration to Australia um, are at the root of the housing crisis. Obviously, as socialists, we reject this outright and uh, support uh, the rights of migrants uh, to come here. But what? why is this wrong? What, you know, this is a pretty concerning uh, political development in Australian politics, the kind of return of this rabid anti-migrant politics on the right. Yeah, and actually there was a, a survey conducted recently by a very right-wing organisation, Institute for Public Affairs, but that showed uh, that 60% uh, of respondents uh, thought that immigration should be controlled um, until rent prices, uh, housing prices uh, went down. So that's concerning. And I think on a a certain level, it can make sense to people. um, There aren't enough homes. If you have more people, homes will be more expensive. On the face of it, that seems uh, to make sense. Uh, But actually, um, there's really no truth uh, to the argument. And I think there's a bunch of things uh, that you can talk about. First of all, migration isn't really at historically very high levels. Um, it's going up a bit um, after pandemic lows, but uh, it's at much lower levels uh, than it was during the post-Second World War boom. And so if migration uh, was the issue, if migration actually was the thing that was making house prices uh, more expensive or meaning that people couldn't get rentals, then you'd expect that Australia would have been in an absolutely terrible housing crisis uh, after the Second World War, which is really when there was a boom uh, in migration. And of course, that wasn't uh, the case. And then, But I think the most important thing is, is that that picture uh, of more people, of migrants, meaning uh, that there are going to be fewer homes for people, they're going to be more expensive, just takes it as a given uh, the, the market, that uh, what actually matters um, is whether uh, landlords, whether developers uh, are going to be able to make money uh, off building homes. So I think it's just one of the crazy things actually about capitalism is that there's a really desperate need for more houses uh, at the moment, uh, but actually fewer houses are getting built because there's a crisis uh, in in the building industry. So the problem really is the explanation uh, for why house prices are going up, why rent prices are going up is profits. 
uh, it's not uh, migration. And there's just so much uh, that could actually be done uh, to make homes more affordable. And none of it has anything to do uh, with limiting uh, migration. We could take all of the empty homes that there are in Australia sitting there and actually use them uh, to house people. We could cut all of the uh, tax concessions that are given uh, to wealthy investors, the negative gearing, uh, the capital gains tax uh, exemptions and lower house prices. And the government could actually just build houses. The government could be providing houses uh, to people rather than just relying uh, on the market and the profits of developers uh, and landlords uh, to supply housing. Yeah, it's. I just find it so repulsive because the government – you know, wants to blame my, well, the, not just the government, it's like the, the whole media have been reporting this as though it's like it's a migration-fueled housing crisis. That's what the ABC said um, yesterday. And it's like the government wants to, and, and businesses want to bring migrants here to exploit them and to make money out of them, basically, but they don't want to fucking house them because, like you said, housing in this country is just left up to a private market. So it's about whether... Uh, individual, you know, developers can profit at that exact moment. That's that's uh, how they make the decision about whether to build a new house or a new uh, housing development, um, not the actual needs of, of people in this country. And it is most basic. Migrants don't raise uh, the price of rents or the price of houses. Uh, migrants are not responsible for lower, lowering people's wages, um, you know, people's wages not even keeping up with inflation. All of the Australian bosses are. <laughs> um, I mean, you get a, uh, a sense of just the utility of racism to capitalism. This is true in every country, definitely in Australia. When you hear some of the rhetoric coming out of uh, Peter Dutton and the right in particular right now, um, that you can have this crisis. It's so clearly a question of class. The bosses, the landlords, the capitalists, the banks getting rich while people can barely afford um, rent, barely afford mortgage payments. Uh, but what is dominating the entire kind of compliant corporate media landscape? It's this, oh, it's actually, it's all about migrants. This question, the classic kind of divide and rule function uh, that racism plays. And I think particularly given the fact that the Labor government um, don't have a response to any of this, they agree with a whole, like they don't want to lower migration, but they agree that, you know, the market um, is king and that migration is a problem with, and, you know, they want to pin everything on supply that we're only going to see more and more of this kind of racist rhetoric from the right as the kind of broad cost of living crisis as well as the housing crisis worsens. Well, one really obvious failing of the government that hasn't gotten much media attention is the decades and decades of um, failing to build public housing, basically. And, and in this country, public housing has gone backwards Massively, um, you know, the vast majority of houses and, and apartments and stuff are privately owned. Um, so let's talk about that a bit. Like one one question is, there's a few different words that get used around this topic. There's social housing and affordable housing, and there's also something called public housing. Can you explain to our listeners what the difference between those terms are? Yeah, I think the term social housing has become really ubiquitous, uh, but it is a very different thing uh, to public housing. So social housing is an umbrella term and it includes two different sorts of housing. There's public housing, which is housing that's owned and run uh, by the government, by the state. Uh, but social housing also includes community housing. So this is housing uh, that is not necessarily owned by the state and that is run 
uh, by non-government organisations. In Australia, that's uh, not-for-profit uh, organisations, uh, charities, large NGOs. Um, but in other countries uh, where they have social housing uh, and community housing providers uh, are providing a whole section um, of, of housing for people, it also includes for-profit. In the UK, there are for-profit providers um, that are providing uh, social housing. So I guess some people would say, okay, public housing run by the government, it's not for profit. But then NGOs that are not for profit, that you know, that's technically part of their title, not for profit. Why would we be against that, you know, just because it's run by a charity or an NGO? These non-government organisations, they just run themselves uh, like businesses. I was just reading an Australian housing and urban uh, research institute report uh, that they did about attitudes amongst uh, community housing providers uh, in Australia. Um, and uh, what the leaders of these organizations wanted to emphasize is that this is a business uh, and it's about entrepreneurship and it's about growth uh, for their organization. So this is just the logic of any uh, corporation. I mean, you can take a whole in any number of examples of organizations that might say, well, we're not for profit, but actually are just run like corporations and really on the basis of profit. The universities are a really good uh, example of that. They make hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in surplus. They run themselves just as ruthlessly as any other corporation. They're just not paying out uh, dividends um, to shareholders. I think the other thing uh, for government in uh, in shifting housing to non-government uh, organisations uh, is actually about the workers uh, in those organisations. In New South Wales, there were four stock transfers uh, of about 14,000 uh, properties from uh, the Department of Housing uh, to non-government organisations, a lot of it uh, in Sydney or uh, up on the central coast. And this means big job losses um, in the Department of Housing. And it means workers then going uh, from uh, the public service where, uh, you know, pay rates are by no means uh, great, uh, but then into community housing providers where the pay rates are a lot lower. The community housing providers as well, there's far less unionisation uh, in them. So, again, for government, this is about reducing the cost actually um, of, of providing, uh, providing housing. And around the country, even in the midst of this housing crisis, there are actually a whole range of battles going on right now to defend existing public housing um, from being written off. Um, and, you know, mostly that state governments, most state governments everywhere except Tasmania or the Labor state government right now. Um, so can you tell us a bit about that, like the role of Labor in this kind of neoliberal transition and sell-off of public housing? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the key examples is in Victoria with the Dan Andrews government, the big housing build, uh, which is, you know, touted $5.3 billion was going to solve the housing crisis uh, in Victoria. But what this was, was uh, taking public housing estates and handing them over uh, to developers to build private for-profit housing with a small fraction of that to be uh, no longer public housing, uh, but housing run uh, by community housing uh, organisations. Like So taking massive amounts uh, of public housing and handing it over really to the private sector. And the results of that, over the first four years, the net increase uh, in social housing was 75 properties, which is oh. absolutely nothing. And over the same period, the already long waiting list for public housing in Victoria has gone up by thousands and thousands uh, and thousands. 
and there um, again were some studies done uh, about the big housing build about was this value for money this 5.3 billion dollars study found it would be cheaper and more efficient for the government to have held on to the land not have handed it over to private developers and just built more public housing which seems very obvious <laughs> Um, but is absolutely not uh, the approach uh, of Labor governments in Victoria or in any other state in Australia. The classic Kafka-esque story (laughs) of privatisation of everything. It's just like, oh, we we sold that off and now that public transport or that housing is run by like a private organisation. Oh, it actually, it costs us more too. Yeah, of course. And just like the obvious solution of like you want more houses to exist. Why don't you just fucking build them instead of go about this this sort of um, circuitous route? I mean, I know why. It's because they are more interested in handing free money over to developers than actually housing people. But, um, yeah, it seems very illogical on the face of it. Um, there's also been, you know, some stuff here in New South Wales. Um, we went to some protests about this and spoke to some public housing residents in, in Glebe and, uh, other places where there's a, a sell-off. And that's interesting because the New South Wales uh, Labor government, Chris Minns, the, the Premier before he was elected, actually promised uh, public housing tenants that there would be no sell-offs of public housing and has um, just done an about-face. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's absolutely disgraceful. So <clears throat> one of the big redevelopments is going to be in Waterloo in inner-city uh, Sydney, and this is a very large public housing uh, estate. There are 3,000 uh, residents who face being evicted from their homes uh, so that it can be redeveloped by private developers. And, you know, they're being told, oh, you'll be able to go back to your homes. There'll still be houses there for you. But we're talking about uh, people who have been there for decades being uh, evicted. Uh, and then it will be years and years before any new housing uh, is built there. And uh, the Minns Labor government went to the election specifically on the promise that they would stop the Waterloo redevelopment. The local member there handed out leaflets uh, to the public housing residents say, that said, hands off Waterloo, vote for Labor to stop the redevelopment. Labor win the election, they get in. And then Chris Minns' message uh, to the public housing tenants in Waterloo is, gotcha, weren't you stupid to believe us? You should have taken a dictionary with you uh, along to the polling booth. You didn't look up the word privatisation, did you? He says that Labor's plans to continue that redevelopment don't meet, he said, the most basic definition of the word privatisation. Now, if you're going to take public housing, housing that's owned by the state, and you're going to end up with it being owned by private developers or private owners, how is that not privatisation? I think that's privatisation by any ordinary uh, person's meaning of the world. And clearly, uh, the residents of Waterloo think that's privatisation. They stand to lose their homes and quite rightly, they're angry about it. Labor say that uh, they're going to build extra social housing, again, that term, and affordable houses uh, in the redevelopment. Uh, but affordable housing is, again, just one of those terms that just doesn't mean what you think it means. Uh, affordable housing uh, to any ordinary person means a house that you could actually afford uh, to pay for. you got to get a dictionary out again. Exactly. <laughs> got to get that dictionary out. you got to be careful. 
But affordable housing, as the term is used by uh, you know housing academics by the Labor government, just means housing that's provided on some sort of a discount uh, on the market rent. So we saw these uh, Kevin Rudd's uh, stimulus stuff, the National um, Rental Affordability uh, Scheme. Uh, there were all these properties that the uh, Labor government gave subsidies uh, to private developers uh, to build uh, as long as they made them affordable properties. Um, but what this meant was just a discount on the market rent, either 80% or 75% uh, of the market price. And you don't need to be a housing academic to spot the problem with that. If the median rental for a property in Sydney at the moment is between $620, $700 a week, paying 80% or 75% of that doesn't make it affordable. It's still totally unaffordable. But in exchange for that, private developers are getting all sorts of concessions about height limits, uh, and about planning restrictions um, in order to build these properties that are still going to be unaffordable for people and only exist as affordable housing uh, for a limited period of time. The way of the Okay, well, I'm here with Carolyn Iena, who's from the uh, Action for Public Housing group and is a resident at 82 Wentworth Park Road. Can you tell us what's happening uh, there where you live? Um, well, we got a uh, visit from Land and Housing Corporation last year and they said that they're going to demolish and, um, you know, put up something else. Um, one moment they were saying it's going to be 100% public housing and I just scoffed. And then the next minute they said 100% social housing. Again, I scoffed. And they claimed that they were going to retain ownership of the site. And again, I scoffed. Some people have... Uh, been relocated already um, and also we had a few people die. One tenant had been moved uh, but he was just really in an awful state and he just got pushed out um, really in a very bullying way and he had a lot more falls and it just escalated any illness that he had and now he's passed away and um, I well I'm being moved out to Catherine Street where my neighbour passed away. So it was his dying wish that I get that place because he knew that if I leave it up to them, they're going to give me some kind of dump. So what do you um, think about the Labor, state Labor government? Because they obviously promised they were going to protect public housing, probably one of the bases on which some people voted for them. Yes. And what have they what, you know, done here? Yes, exactly right. Um, Rose Jackson has been to my building before the election and said, we're not going to privatise public housing. But she was wishy-washy about that particular building. And we had a round table, if you will, wasn't round, but anyway, um, with other public housing tenants there and myself. And again, she was saying that we weren't going to, they weren't going to privatise uh, public housing. And what exactly has happened? And by the way, Rose, I didn't vote for you. <laughs> so they outright lied to public housing tenants to get their votes, basically? Yes, yes exactly. Well, let's talk politics. Let's talk about Labor's housing bill, the HAF. Um, what's in it and why is it rubbish? What do you guys think? <laughs> <laughs> So the big headline uh, is that the half the Housing Australia Future Fund is going to build 30,000 social and affordable housing 
uh, properties uh, over five years. So for Labor, this is the solution uh, to the housing crisis, but it's absolute rubbish. It's going to do absolutely nothing to address the housing crisis and is only set uh, to make it deeper. So the devil really uh, is in the detail uh, of what this 30,000 um, uh, social and affordable housing uh, properties means and also the way uh, that Labor is saying they're going to provide the money for it. So the bill uh, in its original form, the big headline was it's $10 billion uh, for housing, but it wasn't $10 billion uh, to be spent on housing. It was $10 billion to be invested in the stock market and then uh, returns from that $10 billion uh, would be spent uh, on housing. Not even all the returns. It was There was a maximum. It couldn't be more than $500 million. But actually, there's a real chance uh, that the fund uh, would make losses. In the previous financial year, um, actually, uh, these types of funds had lost money. Um, and so, if that were to be repeated in the future, actually, it wouldn't just be zero dollars uh, for these properties. It would be a negative uh, amount uh, of money. And then also, the thirty thousand uh, figure is just totally dodgy. Um, so, first of all, we're not talking about uh, just public housing. We're talking again about social housing, and of course, again, that affordable housing. So, not necessarily properties that anyone can actually uh, afford to rent. But also the 30,000 properties is really just a a fantasy. There was some analysis uh, done in Crikey about, well, actually how many properties could get built uh, with this money. And a generous estimate is probably about 14,000 properties uh, over five years, less than half. And so that is even not enough properties to house people who are living on the streets at the moment uh, in Australia. It doesn't even go that far. So it doesn't even touch uh, the public housing waiting lists as they are at the moment. There's probably about 165,000 households on the, so in, in urgent need of housing on the public housing waiting lists um, across Australia at, at the moment. And this is over five years. Like those numbers are only going to get bigger. So the the headline figures are splashy. It's 10 billion. It's 30,000 uh, homes. But actually, this is going to do nothing uh, to address the housing crisis. And just to you know, put it even more in layman's terms, this is $10 billion to gamble on the stock market. And if they gamble well, you might get $500 million a year, which again, like look at the cost of housing. This is not very much. But also if they do poorly, you might get nothing or less than nothing. Yeah, it's a joke. So what we actually need uh, to address the housing crisis, the the number can vary depending on um, uh, on the source, but it's between about six hundred and eighty thousand to a million uh, properties, uh, public housing properties, to address uh, the housing crisis. And some academics say that really we need to be building fifty thousand uh, public housing properties uh, every year. Now that might sound like a lot, um, and it, to build fifty thousand properties each year, which is probably talking about something like fifteen billion, twenty billion dollars uh, a year. And again, that sounds like uh, a lot of money. But then you compare it uh, to what the Labor government uh, is spending uh, on other things. They're spending a hundred billion dollars uh, on tax concessions uh, for landlords over the next uh, four years. They're spending. Uh, over $300 billion is estimated now on stage three tax cuts for the richest people uh, in society. And they're spending between about $350 billion and $500 billion uh, on nuclear submarines, submarines uh, for war. 
you take away, you take that money and you spend it uh, on housing, you could instantly solve the housing crisis uh, in Australia. And actually, you'd probably have a few hundred billion dollars left over to pay for things like maybe some extra schools or some hospitals. Mm. Or we could all live in mansions. Yeah. (laughs) I think if Labor's able to pass the bill, that's done. Uh, It's not a situation where, uh, I hate this phrase, but it's a a floor, not a ceiling. (laughs) This is just absolute rubbish. It is total fantasy to think that Labor... Uh, would get this bill through and then maybe next year say, oh, we've had another thought about it. We're not so keen now on the stock market gambling. Actually, now we're just going to commit $10 billion uh, to to building public housing. That is not going to happen. In response um, to the Greens' uh, unwillingness to pass the bill, there have been some changes to it. The stock market speculation is still in there. <laughs> That's not going anywhere. Uh, but Labor now says that they will spend... Uh, a minimum of 500, sorry, they will spend $500 million uh, a year uh, on building properties, uh, even if the fund uh, doesn't make that return. But I mean, this is just an absolutely minuscule uh, amount of money. um, And that's going to go nowhere to actually addressing the housing crisis. It's another example of Labor Party symbolic box checking to kind of hint at a social problem that they know their voter base uh, care about while actually doing nothing about resolving it. Um, I wanted to get into the thick of talking about the Greens and the fact that the Greens um, are saying they're going to vote down the half, have you know refused to support it, are copying a lot of flack um, in the media for that. And I think this is a welcome <laughs> uh, uh, development from the Greens, particularly as they have had the tendency to just wave through pretty crap labor policies like their environmental policy um yeah what do you think about this strategy from the greens and you know strengths limitations well i think it's good that they've refused uh to pass the half uh in its current form it's good that they're taking a little bit of a stand uh, about it um would have been good to see them take uh even this much of a stand over the uh, safeguards mechanism uh bill um but yeah i think they're right to say Uh, that this isn't going to address the housing crisis and it shouldn't be passed um, in its current form. Uh, I mean, I think what they're asking uh, the government to do is still pretty modest. Um, They originally said that they wanted uh, $5 billion worth uh, of direct investment um, into building housing. Weren't calling for public housing, calling for no challenge really to it being uh, social housing, but obviously $5 billion of direct investment would be a much better money better amount of money, still not what's actually needed, but certainly better than maybe $500 million. Um, and But they reduced that demand um, because Labor uh, wouldn't negotiate about it uh, to $2.5 billion. Uh, um, but they're also maintaining their demand that uh, Labor do something uh, for renters, um, that they need to impose some sort of uh, rent freeze, or now they're talking uh, about uh, rent caps, um, before uh, they'd passed the bill. And that's had a, a little bit of an effect. Um, the fact that Labor now says that they will commit the $500 million uh, each year um, is a change that's come in response um, to the Greens uh, holding uh, the line. And Labor's also announced now that they will uh, give $2 billion uh, to the states, not attached to the bill, um, but uh, for housing, which again, um, 
that's the result of the Greens uh, holding the line. Again, totally inadequate. Like that $2 billion, uh, it's, the states aren't even required to spend it on building housing. They can, for instance, spend it on repairing existing public housing, which is in an absolutely deplorable state of uh, repair. And actually, the last time uh, a Labor government did something like that, which again was um, under Kevin Rudd, stimulus money, uh, the state governments just reduced the housing budgets by the same amount of money. So the the, the net effect was absolutely zero. And that may be something um, that we could see uh, happening uh, again. But yeah, I think it's good um, that the Greens uh, haven't passed it. The bill's now been delayed uh, until October. I think ultimately we don't know really what's going to happen uh, with the bill. I think um, that it'd be difficult for the Greens to pass it without Labor making some more of a concession. Um, but I think if Labor is prepared to come uh, a little bit further, then we'd expect probably the Greens uh, would pass it. Yeah, it's worth unpacking a bunch of it, right? So the, I mean, one of the major th- criticisms of, of the Greens is is about rent, that there's just absolutely nothing in the bill for renters, which is true. Um, and they suggested first a, a freeze, which would mean no landlord is allowed to increase rents for a period of time, um, which would have been good, obviously. Uh, but they are willing to compromise with the Labor Party and offering sort of a cap so they, where landlords can increase rents, but, you know, only by a certain amount um, and there's a ceiling on that. So I think that it's, uh, yeah, it's excellent that there, you know, there is some criticism of this bill coming from the Greens and that they've held strong. But you do see some real limitations in even their demands, like the idea that a cap on rent increases when rents are so unaffordable for the vast majority of renters is just completely inadequate. Even in a way, a freeze would be inadequate because people's rents have already gone up so much. So what you really need is, you know, like rents to reduce um, and for for the government to intervene to like force landlords to to charge less. Uh, And obviously building public housing would be a part of being able to drive down those rental prices. Um, So it's good, but yeah, I think there's, there's limitations Another thing is just that I feel like we should get into is the Labor Party's response to the Greens because it has just been so appalling. I don't know if you guys have watched Question Time a bit, but, um, you know, Albanese, Penny Wong, Jim Chalmers all got up to denounce the Greens and in particular Max Chandler-Mather, who's been sort of um, at the head of of opposing the half. Some of the arguments they made are just bonkers. They uh, Albanese got up and did a bit of a, a DJ rhyming um, put-downs of the Greens. So he said that the Greens deal in protest while we deal in progress. There are a series of other rhymes I can't quite remember. but um, And, you know, they accused uh, the Greens of engaging in student politics. Penny Wong had the audacity to get up and say that the Greens are basically now, because they refused to pass this bill, they are responsible for women in domestic violence situations, not being able to um, live in a house, you know, just laying it on thick. Uh, basically, when the Greens are actually doing the right thing, standing up against what will be a, a step backwards in terms of, in, uh, you know, public housing. Yeah, ironic that Anthony Albanese accused um, Max Chandler-Mather from the Green of playing student politics when I've been to a lot of National Union of Students conferences and come across many a stupol hack um, and, like, Albanese's speeches in Parliament have been up there with the worst of them in terms of just just the level of cynicism to say that, like, oh, the Greens voting down our pathetic bill, uh, our pathetic neoliberal housing bill is going to be, yeah, keeping uh, domestic violence women 
uh, women who suffer from domestic violence on the streets. Um, and yeah, I saw uh, even um, demanding that uh, Max Chandler Mather's Jacobin article be tabled mm. in Parliament as evidence that the Greens actually just want everyone to be poor <laughs> because it's good for their door knocking uh, in, in Queensland. Yeah. Um, but yeah, actually, it, it would be a joke, but the media are actually just lapping it up. Yeah. And you get a sense that, like, actually, the Greens. Very moderate demands, um, you know, the first time they've actually, you know, not waved a Labor bill through and actually said, no, um, we're, you know, going to vote this down unless we get something better. I mean, I will say um, about the Greens that they have not, uh, it's great that they've done this, but their track record on just passing Labor's bills, you know, without much, um, without much of a fuss is not very good, like you said, around the, around the climate bill. Um, so I do, I do worry that you know the second they're given a, a crumb from Labor, um, they'll fold on this, and it is coming up for debate again in I think September. It's going to um, be the bill will be moved again in Parliament, and like even listening to Max Chandler Mather, who um, you know has been kind of one of the most left wing Greens pushing uh, pushing this fight against Labor. He's very willing to compromise and he very, he always um, makes sure in any interview that he uh, emphasises how willing to compromise he is. You want to um, negotiate. Exactly. Like, and I think that's kind of one of the reasons why the Greens have been pushed into this position over this bill because Labor was not willing to negotiate with them really um, much at all. Um, but, you know... Uh, Max Chandler Mather has said, like, well, they've they've moved from their position of five billion to half that. They've moved from their position of rent freezes to rent caps, um, and they I think they're willing to go lower than even that uh, if the Labor Party gives them a crumb. And it's this problem with their whole approach, which is we want to kind of rule together with the Labor Party and be a sort of useful partner in government. Um, and all we need for that is like a few fucking crumbs from the table. Not uh, They don't see their role as really bringing the fight to this right-wing neoliberal Labor government and, you know, putting forward the, the kind of interests of young people, working-class people, um, their voters. <laughs> they do that a tiny bit but never enough to, um, to actually push back against Labor's agenda. Yeah, I think that's right. And like Max Chandler Mathers appeared on Q&A. Um, you know, he gave a, a, a budget speech where he made a series of pretty basic left-wing points uh, criticising uh, Labor and and the half. And I think those were that was pretty popular and, you know, they were good basic uh, points. But, yeah, I think the issue really comes is in, well, what are you going to do about it? And I agree Im- immediately um, the Greens want to say we're going to negotiate about it, and that reduction from five billion dollars, which was <clears throat> already actually not enough money <laughs> to actually properly address the crisis, like they're halving it to two point five billion dollars, like that was just in response to Labor basically just saying no. It wasn't that Labor said, "Okay, we'll negotiate with you," and this was their compromise position. It was just Labor said, "We're not going to do five billion dollars," and so the Greens said, "Well, okay, we'll come down to two point five billion." On the issue of the rent freezes and the rent caps, yeah, I mean, I think um, what we actually need is rent control. Um, rents need to be controlled by the government and they need to be affordable for people. This is not a fantasy. Actually, New South Wales, um, during the Second World War and for a period after it, had rent control. Um, so this is a thing that's been done before um, by Australian governments. But, yeah, the Greens have gone from rent freezes, which, um, uh, you know, it would certainly uh, be something to um, rent caps. And like 
they're referring to models like the ACT, um, which has now introduced some form of rent cap up. The limit on rent increases there is CPI, so basically inflation plus 10%. So this just actually bakes in the unaffordability of housing because then landlords are always going to be able to actually increase um, uh, rents by more than the cost of living. And obviously that has no relationship to wages either, um, which at the moment are actually going down by uh, historic rates. So yeah, I think there's big problems um, with rent caps as being an actual solution uh, to the housing crisis. So, Emma, we're at this uh, UNSW student protest for affordable housing on campus. And one of the major issues that has been raised is the car park that we're standing next to right now with a bunch of cars in it. Uh, What are the plans that the university has for it? Well, this car park um, is situated like right next to the NIDA Performing Arts School um, and the university wants to lease it out. It's like quite a large bit of land um, to a purpose-built student accommodation provider, Igloo. People might have heard of Igloo or Scape um, before. They're like extremely exploitative, expensive student accommodation uh, on their website they uh, advertise the best room the most expensive room one of the features of it is that the window opens so you can imagine then <laughs> what the rest of the rooms were like there's lots of memes like comparing it to Swedish like prisons and the Swedish prisons <laughs> look better <laughs> and these things will cost $650 a week for this oh one um, at this night a car park one we got a testimonial actually from someone who lives at a different one on a different location and they said they pay $1,300 a fortnight um, in rent basically and if oh, they yeah. didn't move out and this was the only thing they could find, they would be travelling like four hours um, uh, on public transport to get out to you know the eastern suburbs basically. So the university like... It's not a bad idea to get rid of this car park, to be honest, and build, like, accommodation. The problem is that they're leasing it out to another, you know, huge, greedy corporate landlord that is going to exploit the current uh, crisis, the housing crisis, and squeeze as much money as it can from students, particularly, like, desperate international students will be, like, their market go-to. And what are you arguing should happen instead? Well, we don't think... UNSW should be leasing and helping this, you know, corporate piece of shit igloo build this accommodation here. UNSW make $16 million off their student accommodation. You know, they should not make a profit at all. Um, They pay their vice chancellor a million dollars. There's lots of money that they get from research and whatever else that they sell off around this university. They should use that money, use those profits and build uh, student accommodation, stuff that's actually worth like living in and is nice. And they should charge it to at cost value Hmm. to make sure it's affordable for students. We think that should be $100 a week because that's what a third of an income of welfare would be, which is what is needed to not experience rental stress. Mm. So they should actually just cap rents at $100 and shouldn't assume people have to work part-time, shouldn't expect students have to like study and work to be able to afford any of their accommodation. Thanks for listening, everyone. That's the end of part one of our two-part episode on the housing crisis. Make sure you catch part two, where we delve into how capitalism has shaped our cities and we talk about some of history's inspiring high points in the struggle to defend public housing. Don't forget, you can subscribe to our Patreon, just look up Red Flag Radio, and be sure to follow all our coverage in Red Flag of the unfolding housing crisis. Until then, we have a world to win.